Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. This is one of the most remarkable prophecies in, in the whole Bible and it gives us great confidence that the book of Revelation was inspired by God. It is truly remarkable. To understand the book of Revelation, it's necessary to understand what it doesn't say. There are many popular misconceptions about what the book of Revelation is all about. Sometimes these misconceptions are based on certain unchallenged assumptions about what it teaches. If we're to have any chance of understanding it, we must make sure that we understand what it doesn't say. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in this last book of the Bible, Understanding Revelation, Part 6. We've seen so far in the book of Revelation that the events that were described in there as being future were future for the original audience. In fact, we're going to see that this is one of the critical things that we have to understand when looking at the book of Revelation. In fact, to, you cannot understand what Revelation is all about unless you understand when it was written. Now, there's a, a lot of popular scholarship that says the book of Revelation was written around about 95 AD. This is toward the obviously toward the end of the first century. There's lots of good reasons, as we've covered, why that can't be the case and why it just isn't the case. And when, when you understand when it was written and then when you understand who it was written to, you can dispel some of the ideas about the book Revelation, which many of these have been popularized largely by the availability of the internet, where people are reading into the book of Revelation certain things that it's it's very, very difficult to believe, if not impossible to believe, that this is what the Apostle John was being told to communicate by Christ to the seven Turkish churches who were in AD 65, they were one year into a massive wave of persecution, of which John the Apostle himself was, well, we might use the word victim. He was a victim of this persecution. That's why he says in the opening chapter that I am your brother in this tribulation. And the tribulation he's referring to is the persecution that is undergoing at the time. So it's really important to understand what the book of Revelation does say who it says it to and when it was saying it because that has a bearing on the the who therefore it has a bearing on the context so some of the things that the book of revelation does not talk about it's just not there one of the, the several of the popular things and of which probably the most popular thing is this notion of the rapture uh, many people associate evangelical uh, conservative Christianity with this whole idea of the rapture. And many people assume that it's in the book of Revelation. The problem is, it isn't. It's just not there. Some people see the the opening verse of Revelation chapter 4 as the rapture, but clearly when you read that in context, it's the beginning of the revelation, not the rapture. This is John being shown something. He's been shown a vision, and he uses the expression, uh, comes up, but it's an expression to show that he was given a glimpse into heaven and given a glimpse of future visions. It's not the rapture. And if that's the best one that those people who promote the book of Revelation as being about the rapture, then they've got an exceptionally weak case. It's just not there. Other things that aren't in the book of Revelation, which surprises people, is the term antichrist. Antichrist just doesn't occur. Now, I think the character of the Antichrist is identified, as we'll discuss briefly in a moment, 
but the expression is not there. In other words, the book of Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It's not about the rapture. And here's the third thing that might surprise most people. The expression end of the world doesn't occur in the book of Revelation either. It's just not there. In fact, the expression end of the world doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible at all. What does occur is ends of the earth, which is speaking more geographically of scope, the geographic scope of the glory of God and what God was going to do and how he was going to redeem people even unto the ends of the earth. But the the expression end of the world doesn't occur. Now, there, there are expressions that do occur in the scripture, which many people have confused with this expression, such expressions such as the end of the age, the end of the age. And hopefully, as we've seen by now, when Christ was talking about the end of the age in answering the disciples' question in Matthew chapter 24, he was talking about the end of the temple age because he says, this temple will be destroyed. And that's when the disciples say, well, when will this age end? And it's the age of God's covenant being mediated through a physical temple with physical animal sacrifices administered to administered by a priestly class of people. And that is all embedded in the old covenant. And Jesus says, well, this temple is going to be done away with. Well, if the temple is going to be done away with, that means the age of animal sacrifices, the age of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood is also about to be done away with. It's not the end of the world that the disciples were asking about. It's the it's the disciples were asking about the end of that particular age. And that's the question Jesus answers. This is part six of, of the Revelation series. And, and I briefly want to go through, it's quite an ambitious aim that I've got here, to go through chapters 12 to 18 to have a look at some of the highlights in there. To do that, as I've said, by understanding the the date in which this was written, we understand the audience it was written to, and we understand the context behind, the background, the historical background that was behind this event, the the writing of the book of Revelation. Uh, By the way, it's not the book of Revelations. There's one revelation being given, and we're told that in the opening five words of the book. But it's important to understand the key dates, the key dates that that form the background to the book of Revelation. These dates include 64 AD, 66 AD, 68 AD, and 70 AD. So you can see we're we're stepping up by two years each time, starting at 64 AD. Let me explain why these dates are so significant and why every Christian, every Bible-believing Christian, should at least be aware of the background to these dates as they relate to the New Testament and especially as they relate to how we should understand the book of Revelation. In 64 AD, we had Caesar Nero ruling on the throne of Rome. He was the emperor at the time. And in 64 AD, he began a massive wave of martyrdom and persecution against Christians. Hundreds of thousands of Christians were being martyred around the empire at this time. This was a horrific time. It was a time when Peter the Apostle was taken and crucified upside down. Then shortly after that, the Apostle Paul, who we read about in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts ends rather abruptly 
because we, it, it, it almost finishes with a, an and then, and, and then what? We're just not told. It, it doesn't finish. It leaves us hanging. Well, what we know from history is that Paul was released from house arrest, so to speak, and taken before Caesar and condemned to death. And the Apostle Paul was beheaded under orders of Caesar Nero also in 64 AD. Now, interestingly, the Apostle Paul could write to the Colossians not long before he was executed. And he could say in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6 that this gospel, he says, I thank God that this gospel has now been preached in all the world. Very interesting expression. He goes on in verse 23 and says, This gospel has now been preached to every creature under heaven. Well, what on earth did Paul mean when he said this gospel has been preached to, to all, in all the world and has been preached to every creature under heaven? Well, a study of that passage in Colossians chapter 1 will soon reveal that he's not talking about globally going around the world because clearly he didn't move out of the Roman Empire. So what does he mean? Well, that, that's a clue in itself. There's different words for world, and the Bible has words that do mean the whole earth. That's cosmos, or even the word G, uh, uh, G-E, where we get words like geography, geology, and so on. But in this instance, there's also another word that's used in Matthew 24, and it's in verse 14, it's the word oikumene. And it's a word that's translated into English as world, the... Uh, NIV, I believe, correctly translates it in, I think it's Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 1, or Luke chapter 3, verse 1 from memory, where it says uh, the whole world, oikumene, was ordered to undertake the census. I think it was under Caesar Augustus, uh, was ordered to undertake the census. I think that's Luke uh, chapter 2. And it's that word oikumene, which is translated by the NIV translators as the entire Roman Empire. In other words, the known world, the conquered world of the Romans was ordered to undertake the census. Well, interestingly, that's exactly the same word that's used by Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, where it says, this gospel shall be preached in all the world, then the end shall come. Well, all the world is that word oikumene that Christ is using. Just interesting. But 64 AD is when the persecution against Christians began. And as I've said, Paul the Apostle could say to the Colossians that this gospel is now being preached to every Jew. Every known Jew throughout the Roman Empire has now at least heard the announcement of the New Covenant. The next significant date is 66 AD. 66 AD is when Nero was fed up with the revolts and rebellions happening in Jerusalem and he ordered his armies to go in and quell the revolt and just take control of Jerusalem. So in 66 AD, Josephus tells us that General Cestius, who had a different armies, national armies under Roman authority, come and surround Jerusalem. And it was then that he came into the city, set up the Roman insignia of worship in the temple, which arguably Christ foretold as well. And he called that the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24. And mysteriously, Josephus says that General Cestius then withdrew from the city. Uh, strangely, and Josephus was bewildered about it as well. And it, and we read in Josephus that then the Jews of the city 
shut the gates and the siege of Jerusalem began in 66 AD. And the armies, those armies surrounded Jerusalem and that siege lasted 1260 days, three and a half years. It was a time of tremendous tribulation for Jerusalem. And then the next key date is 68 AD. 68 AD was when the young emperor Nero was invited to take his life by the Praetorian Guard. That They were fed up with him. And so in 68 AD, Nero ended his own life. Now, if you do the math on this, from 64 AD, when his reign of persecution and martyrdom against the church began, to 68 AD, you also come up with a figure of around about 1240 to 1260 days, or three and a half years. So people who are looking for a seven-year tribulation need to factor in the historical events of the three and a half years of persecution and martyrdom against the church and the three and a half years of tribulation against Jerusalem, which ended in, here's the next key date, 70 AD. And 70 AD, every Christian should really have this uh, background information that it was 70 AD when the armies of Rome finally stormed the city, they stormed the gates, they literally took the temple apart block by block and destroyed the temple and thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews who were holed up in that city were killed. They were killed under the Roman catapult attack. They were killed when the Romans stormed the city. It was bloodshed. And Josephus describes so much blood being shed by the Romans at that time that it was flowing under the gates of Jerusalem as high as a horse's bridle, as high as the, the saddle of a horse. So you've got, you've got much, much bloodshed happening in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. All the priests were brought out of the temple and executed, uh, ending the lineage of priests, ending any possibility of the old covenant being re-established because without priests you can't have the sacrifices without the sacrifices in a temple by priests you can't have the essential elements of the old covenant so they're the key dates 64 AD persecution and martyrdom broke out against the church 66 AD is when the siege of Jerusalem began 68 AD is when Nero died at the age of 31 and then in, and that's when the persecution against the church ended. And then in 70 AD, that's when Jerusalem was finally conquered by General Cestius and uh, uh, sorry, by, by Cestius's armies, which was then under the command of General Vespasian, a Spanish general, and his son Titus, who both went on to become the co-emperors of Rome. So General Vespasian would become the emperor and then handed a co-emperor over to St. Titus. All right, so they're the key dates and they're really important to understand because when you understand those, there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation that should now begin to make sense when we read things in that context. The other thing that is really helpful to understand is this concept of gematria. Gematria is how uh, things were communicated almost in a code and it was often seen, archaeologists have found this around Rome and they found it around the ancient world, where instead of using letters, each letter had a numerical value. So if we were to, say, put it into English, we might say that the letter A had the value of 1, 
the letter B had the number of 2, the letter C had the value of 3, and so on. And so in other words, you could write you know, uh, a cat by putting 3, 1, and whatever number the letter T came up with. So you'd end up with a, with a three-digit number, but, but essentially it would be a code for the word cat. And that was called Gematreya, and that actually happens where people... In those days, we, we actually have archaeologists who have found this thing called Gematreya graffiti, where it, it translated back from the numbers back into uh, Greek. You, 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 you read messages like, um, you know, Paul loves Mary, you know, that kind of thing. And those, the, the use of Gematreya, the use of numbers to equate names, was quite a common thing. And when you understand that Kaiser Nero, which is uh, Kaiser Neron, which is the Greek for Caesar Nero, is Gematria, in Gematria, it's the number 666. And again, it's just important to understand this, that, that Gematria was, was an established way of communicating something using numbers. So that's Gematria, really important concept. The other thing that we are going to need to understand reading Revelation chapters 12 to 18 is this other concept called marking. There are people that are described as having received a mark. And again, because we've already seen that much of the content of the book of Revelation is grounded in the Old Testament. And we read in Ezekiel that Ezekiel was shown in the spirit that there were certain people who were marked by God and they were kept and they were they were honored by God as being people whose hearts were right before him in a in a similar way we, we've already read about it in chapter 7 where it talks about those who are the redeemed who have been marked and so rather than thinking of this as a physical mark as something that has any material qualities to it at all it's better to understand it in exactly the way that the Old Testament has already used it a mark of dedication, a mark saying these people are reserved for, in, in the examples in the Old Testament, for redemption or for saving. And that mark has a countermark. That countermark is those people who, who rebel, those people who refuse to submit to Christ, who refuse the word of God for their life. And that mark is, is a mark of rebellion. And those people we're going to see in Revelation chapter 13 who refuse to submit to God, who refuse to acknowledge Christ as Lord, are people who are marked with a countermark. In other words, these are the ones who have rejected God. So marking is a spiritual thing. Now, the reason I think this is important is because there are some people who are fearful of a physical mark being like a silicon chip some people are even fearful of tattoos. Some people are fearful of, of some kind of uh, barcode or something like that that will be physically, materially put onto their skin. And that will mean they will be damned to hell for eternity. And I, I just want to reassure people that that is not what Revelation is talking about. It's talking about a spiritual allegiance. In other words, you're marked by your spiritual allegiance. The other word that we're going to need to understand, the other term we're going to need to understand is the term beasts. Now, this is introduced to us in Daniel chapters 7 and 8, 
where Daniel sees certain beasts, variously described as goats or something like that, where he tells us, because Daniel receives an interpretation of these prophetic visions, that these beasts were foreign powers. These beasts were, were emperors, conquerors. And we, we can trace these beasts through the, from the, the Greek Empire to the uh, Assyrian Empire through to the Roman Empire. And a beast, therefore, is a ruler. And Revelation is going to use the expression uh, in, twice. It's going to use, in, in chapter 13, it's going to describe a beast from across the sea. And then the other beast is the beast from the earth. And that word earth in Greek is the word ge, G-E, in, translated into English, uh, gamma epsilon. So that those, those two beasts, one from across the sea, one from the earth or the land, land is the same Greek word, indicates we have a ruler from the land and a ruler who's not from the land, that is from across the sea. Now, the land is an expression every Jew was familiar with. It meant Jewish. It, went, it meant someone who was an, an Israelite. So the ruler of the Israelites in the, at the time when John wrote this, you might be forgiven for thinking that it was Herod, but the real ruler was the high priest. The, he was the one who was the leader of Israel. And when you read in the Old Testament, it was the priests who were to judge. It was the priests who were to make decisions. And God's heart broke when the people cried out for more than that, when they cried out for a king like the other nations. So it was the high priest who was the the ruler, the beast, from the land. The one who comes from across the sea, to state the obvious, is not from the land. He's not Jewish. He's not a Hebrew, not an Israelite. And that ruler at the time was the emperor of Rome, the Caesar, which at that time of writing was Caesar Nero. So understanding this is how this expression is used, again, should help us to read Revelation over the shoulder of the original readers and to avoid putting into Revelation things that just aren't there. And I'm sure if people go looking for things like rapture or antichrist or things like that, they may be able to twist and distort scriptures to almost make it fit, almost make it sound like it's talking about that. But we're better to avoid that from the start. We're better to look at it with fresh eyes and ask the question, what did John actually mean? What does it actually say? The next term that's going to be really helpful to understand, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, is the use of the term kings. Now, again, if we're looking over the shoulder of the original audience in 65 AD and they read kings, what were they supposed to think? Would they be thinking Herod? Well, no, although there was a lineage of Herod, that the line of Herod was not recognized by Jews. It, it was it, they just did not see Herod as the rightful king of Israel. Just wasn't the case. So who would they have thought of? Well, if you are, if you understand Roman history, the first king of Rome was Julius, and as we've said, Julius was never crowned king. He was. He was uh, sorry. He was never crowned emperor, and uh, you may recall, if you understand Roman history, if you've done any Shakespeare, that Julius was executed on the floor of the Senate just before he was uh, crowned emperor uh, by Brutus. Brutus killed him, which is where we get the expression uh, that was brutal. Um, and so, 
he wasn't crowned king. Uh, sorry, he wasn't crowned emperor. He was the king, but he wasn't crowned emperor. And this is important. An emperor is a king over other kings. That's the, the major difference. So who was the next king who was crowned emperor? Well, that was his adopted son, his nephew, and his name was Octavian. And his, uh, he, had, he changed his name to Augustus. And so Augustus was the second king. He was the first emperor. And we've seen already that he literally rode a white horse. He was given a crown to rule over the nations. And I think we can make a pretty good case that he's referred to as the rider of the white horse in Revelation chapter 6. But important to understand, Augustus was the second king. Julius, the first king. Augustus, the second king. Then we have uh, Tiberius. And Tiberius was the third king. Then we have Caligula, the fourth king. Then we have uh, Claudius, the fifth king. And then we have Nero, the sixth king. And then after him, it was really interesting in Roman history. You had, uh, it looked like the Roman Empire was going to crumble because there was no, uh, Nero didn't have a son. There was no clear lineage there. And there was a succession of three would-be emperors, uh, Galba, Otho, and Vitalius. And these three only reigned for a matter of months each. In fact, their reign was so short, some historians regard the reign of Galba, Otho, and Vitalius as really the duration of, of one Caesar. And so they're often counted as, as, a, as a, a collection, as one. But, but there are some historians who say, well, no, that's not quite right. They don't even deserve to be counted at all. So some historians don't even count them. They just skip over them because they, they say they never really consolidated the empire. And then there are other historians who uh, regard the fact that, no, they, they actually were emperors, Caesars for a time. We need to count them. So depending on how you count, you've got Julius, one, Augustus, two, Tiberius, three, Caligula, four, Claudius, five, and then Nero, six. And if you count each of them, you've got Galba, uh, Otho, and Vitalis, nine. And then after them came uh, Emperor Vespasian, Caesar Vespasian. So Vespasian was either the 10th emperor, if you you count Galba, Otho, and Vitalis, or if you count them as one, he was the eighth emperor, or if you don't count them at all, as many Romans in that time didn't, he's the seventh emperor. Now, what's really interesting is this is this all took place around 70 AD. And so what we've got is in Revelation chapter 17, verse 10, this most, I think, most remarkable prophecy. And, and the prophecy says this, there are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. Right? Remember how we said the five, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. They're the first five. They've fallen. They're dead. And then it says, one is. Well, the sixth one was Nero. So Nero was reigning. He is. At the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, one is. And that one is, is Nero. 
The other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And the historical background there is he, he was, Vespasian was, was quite elderly. He reigned for a little while. Then he handed over to his son, uh, Titus. So just some interesting background there. In verse 11, it, it goes on. It says, as for the beast uh, that was not and is uh, not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And then it says, And the ten horns that you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And so you've got this really interesting expression that the one who is to come is the seventh, who is a part of the eighth, who is a part of the ten. And you could wonder, I think quite reasonably, without understanding any of the historical background, what on earth is this talking about? How on earth can I possibly understand the book of Revelation when it's talking in such riddles like this? There's one who is the seven, there's one who, but he's also the eighth, who's also the tenth. But when you understand the historical context that Vespasian is counted and was counted in his day by Romans as being either the seventh or being the eighth or being the tenth, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies in, in the whole Bible, and it gives us great confidence that the book of Revelation was inspired by God. It is truly remarkable. So when you read this, don't think this can't be understood. By understanding the historical background, you can understand the book of Revelation. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Understanding Revelation Part 6 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, the book of Revelation is better understood and we are in a better position to appreciate what it says when we understand what it doesn't say. More from Dr. Corbett next week. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.